You are listening to listening Let's talk about evolution for a moment then, yeah. because it seems to me that the great religious traditions really don't know what to do with evolution, and specifically the evolution of the human brain. Because clearly right. at some point in our evolutionary history, maybe 50 or 100,000 years ago, right. the brain developed a new level of complexity that allowed yeah. for language and conceptual thought and basically the human beings that we are today. Yeah. I guess the question is, what was the state of consciousness before that? And I mean, it does come back to you know how much of our consciousness is rooted in the material matter in our brains. Well, again, if you take an integral approach, what you would maintain is that an increase in complexity of brain, or just actually complexity of matter, an increase in complexity of matter is accompanied by an increase in degree of consciousness. So it's the law of consciousness and complexity. The greater one, the greater the other. And so what we find if we look at complexity in evolution is that it goes from atoms to molecules to cells to early organisms, to organisms with a reptilian brainstem, to organisms with a mammalian limbic system, to organisms with a triune brain, we find major leaps in consciousness with each of those levels of complexity. And so, again, the phenomenologists and the idealists would attempt to reduce the material complexity to consciousness. The material reductionists will try to reduce consciousness to brain and off they will go trying to kill each other again. Well, and I would say, I mean, I think a lot of scientists would say that you, you can't even talk about consciousness until you reach a certain level of evolution in most animals. And, I mean, you know, yeah. bacteria don't have consciousness. Plants don't have consciousness. I mean, you certainly can't talk about atoms having consciousness. Well, I don't talk about consciousness. I talk about interiority. And what you start to see as soon as you have a cell, for example, is it, it responds to the environment in ways that cannot be predicted. In other words, if you're looking at just material stuff, like a planet that doesn't have life on it or a rock, a physicist can tell you where that planet's going to be, barring other forces, a thousand years from now. But that physicist cannot tell you where my dog's going to be two seconds from now. Right. And because there is a degree of non-determined interiority. And it's simply there. You can't dismiss it. And that increases till at some point it starts to look like, you know, proto-feelings, possibly with a reptilian brainstem. And then you keep increasing complexity to the mammalian limbic system and you start to get proto-emotions. Mammals, dogs have anger and fear, tension. And then you increase it to a triune brain and you start to get the capacity for magic, mythic, and rational consciousness. So, again, interiority and exteriority seem to develop together, and you can't really reduce one to the other. What happened with religion, of course, is that in the magic and mythic eras, it was really not understood. The science of that time, and there was science, but it was not the major modern science that we have right now, couldn't really detect the relation of consciousness and complexity. The brain was thought to be part of the material world, so it was on the lowest level in the great chain. The great chain used to be, well, still is, for religion, matter, body, mind, soul, spirit. And each of those are thought to be higher levels of awareness. And using that scheme, the material brain would be on rung one, and, you know, the feelings of a dog would be on level two, and so the feelings of a dog are higher than the triune brain. It just it got totally screwed up. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't just religion that got it wrong. The science of 2,000 years ago wasn't advanced either. The science got it wrong. So with the rise of modernity and the emergence of formal operational 
cognition or rationality, you see the emergence of first real forms of this three-strand science that we were talking about because consciousness becomes self-reflexive. And therefore, it also becomes hypothetical, and it's actually informal operational cognition. You see it today in a child. As formal operational cognition emerges around age 10 or 11, you can, for the first time, understand what-if and as-if statements. So hypothetical deductive statements first come into existence. And when science developed that, it made these astonishing leaps. Newtonian science, uh, for what it was, staggeringly brilliant. All of the great advances that we associate with early science in the Enlightenment. And it did discover the complexity of the brain. All of a sudden, then, there was this switch from attempting to mostly reduce matter to consciousness. There was a big switch at the Enlightenment, and the attempt was to reduce consciousness to matter because the brain was understood to be the seat of consciousness. And the complexity of it was thought, in some cases, for reductionists to be able to fully explain consciousness. And so we saw a swing to the other side, although we still have people trying to reduce matter to consciousness. Mm-hmm. What, what about those artificial intelligence scientists who say the human brain is essentially a very advanced computer and that someday scientists will be able to build one of these in the laboratory and improve upon it, you know, make a much better, more powerful computerized brain? Are they just completely wrong? Oh, I don't think so because, again, I think that the complexity of the operations that the artificial intelligence will do will correspond with a complexity of consciousness or a degree of consciousness. And, of course, they're claiming at some point that the artificial machines, if you will, will become self-conscious. And at that point, I bet you that the machine will start telling you that it cannot reduce its value operations to merely the material algorithms that accompany it. The fact that you have to have a material base for it doesn't mean that you can reduce consciousness to that base. Now, here's where it gets interesting, though. Because the scientists would say immediately, well, nevertheless, it's still matter. It's still a material machine. You're looking at it. Now, here's where it does get interesting and takes a new twist. And that is, if you go back to these interior phenomenologies and these interior technologies, the aha experience, the Satori experience, claims to have an understanding of a type of ultimate reality. And it makes the distinction. We said that earlier... Most people make a distinction between being awake and dreaming. Mm-hmm. And that can't be explained by brain activity because both awake and dreaming just show activity. There's nothing on an EEG machine that says when you're dreaming, you're in a state of illusion. That's a false state. And when you're awake, it's a real state. Mm-hmm. It just shows a different state. Well, the Satori experience claims that there's a third major state, and that's called realization or waking up or enlightenment. And the enlightenment experience shows that waking is just as much a dream as the dream state. And so you say, well, that's just ridiculous. And we say, well, try it. I mean, you, you have to do the experiment. You have to look through the telescope if you want to pronounce on Jupiter's moons. And it's a very universal type of claim. And the contemplative traditions that have these satori or enlightenment experiences claim rather universally that what we take to be the normal waking state is really just a dream state. Uh, Well, getting back to the computer then, will a computer ever be able to experience enlightenment? Well, see, the claim would be that when you have this Satori experience, it is an understanding of that which precedes manifest awareness. And what that means is it would actually be the underlying ground of all being, and it's not a mythic 
or magic conception. This is a very rational in its own way conception, but it does maintain that there is an ultimate reality and that the manifest world is a manifestation of that ultimate reality. I mean, what people would call God. Careful. <laughs> um, <laughs> at most, the contemplatives would call it Godhead. Okay. It's, it's so different than the mythic conceptions of God that the word actually is just much more misleading than it is accurate. Okay. But, I mean, just so I understand this, this ultimate reality, I mean, what, say, the Christian mystics might call the Godhead is yes. essentially the same as the Buddhist experience of emptiness. Uh, essentially, yes. And, that's, and emptiness is an important concept because what it means, of course, is that it's neither mind nor matter nor any dualistic concepts like that. That's why it's said to solve really the fundamental problems of how do you reconcile truth and falsity and reality and unreality and mind and matter, interior and exterior, all of these dualistic concepts are said to be understood, deeply, deeply understood with this awakening experience. And so what would happen there is that both the material of the computer and the computer's awareness, all of those are part of the manifest realm. So all those are part of the dream state compared to this waking state. Now, keep in mind, too, that even though awakening or enlightenment says that the normal waking state is like a dream, it doesn't mean it's merely illusory, anything like that at all. It's relatively real. I mean, the chair's here, I'm here, the trees are here, that's fine. But there is a waking up experience that lets you see that, wait a minute, there's something really fundamentally deep and profound that is, in a sense, underlying this ordinary experience. And that undercuts these kind of arguments in terms of what artificial intelligence would do and so on. We would wait and see if they get it to the point where, remember, if you're going to listen to the phenomenological side of the street, what they would say is if artificial intelligence got to a point that could produce consciousness as sophisticated as, let's say, a Zen master, and a machine starts doing meditation, it follows the <laughs> injunctions, and it gets a satori, the machine would say both my relative consciousness and the material it's based on are part of the manifest illusory world. And well, let's just find out. It could be a good test. So you're saying, but you're saying that's not impossible. I'm saying it's not impossible because if there is a ground of being, it precedes anything that's manifest. And all that happens with the machine having a, a waking up experience is it understands the ground of being of which it itself, the machine, is but a manifestation. Hmm. And that is what if you take the phenomenological side of the street correctly, then that is what we would propose as the experiment. Let's get an artificial intelligent Zen master and see what happens. <laughs> now, we've been talking about, <laughs> I don't know, ultimate reality, the Godhead, yeah. uh, cosmic consciousness would be maybe another way of, of putting it. I'm, I'm assuming you'd say this presence, whatever it is, yeah. has always been around. I mean, again, to talk yeah. about the, the physical world, I mean, this goes way beyond the Big Bang, for instance. Yeah. Well, there's a famous Zen koan, and I'll stick with Zen a little bit, because it doesn't use magic or mythic terms at all. Most of the contemplative traditions don't. They use psychology terms, if anything. They, they talk about the mind, looking into the mind, uh, training the mind, training awareness, training attention, training consciousness. And actually, the mythic god is taken to be a, very much an illusory phenomenon as well. It's not at all what this ultimate non-dual reality, the unborn or suchness or isness or emptiness is referred to. And this is something, an understanding that one has in basically training the mind to a point that it can be an instrument of detecting this higher, wider realm of reality. It plugs in to one of these transpersonal stages of development. 
And we do have some evidence for that. In other words, if you follow development in the adult life cycle, and you follow people that have moved from archaic and magic and mythic into adolescent rationality and then into young adulthood pluralism, if you follow them, if they do go to a next stage that's irreversible, integral and transpersonal stages uniformly start to say something like, I am aware of, there is a ground of being, there is a wholeness, a unity, a oneness, and they start describing something that they are aware of. Hmm. And again, you have to actually get to that stage if you want to see what that is. We can't prove that stage to somebody who's not at it. And that's important. It's the same way as if you go to somebody at the mythic stage Mm -hmm. and try to prove to them something from the rational scientific stage. We know it won't work. You go to a fundamentalist who does not believe in evolution and and believes the earth was created in six days, and you go, well, what about the fossil record? And they go, oh, yes, the fossil record. God created that on the fifth day. You can't take any of the data from any higher stage and prove it to a lower stage. The only proof is when that consciousness at that lower stage develops to the higher stage. Without that, it's over their head. And so we would say that somebody who's at a rational stage has a very hard time seeing these trans-rational and transpersonal stages. Mm-hmm. But if we actually follow it scientifically and follow the people who are there, they start saying it. Hmm. Let me ask you about this, because I know you are a, a long-time meditator, and yeah. you have written about how you have had sustained experiences of this non-dual stage. Yeah. Uh, what does it feel like? <laughs> um, it's very simple. It's something that's already ever-present in one's awareness, but it's so simple and so obvious, it's not noticed. And the traditions often refer to it, Zen, for example, refers to it as the suchness of reality, the, the isness of reality. Eckhart called it thusness or thatness. It's the simple moment-to-moment ultimate condition of all things that are arising. And plugging into that simply and deeply answers one's fundamental questions about what ultimate reality is. It's just as simple as drinking a glass of cold water. It's just obvious. I'm not saying that there can't be higher stages. If you look at the scientific evidence for the stages we've talked about so far, going from archaic to magic to mythic to rational, pluralistic to integral and transpersonal, if you look at those and we say we think the highest is transpersonal, good heavens, a future evolution could bring higher stages than Mm -hmm. that. Hmm. So we're not claiming it's the ultimate in that sense. Well, I want to get back to your personal experience. But it's a hell of a lot more real than the, <laughs> the simple, rational, dualistic, cramped, egoic consciousness that defines science. So are you, all, that's all that these stages say is that, oh, I, you know, I see that stage I was at. This is just a little bit higher reality, and it's just more real, and consciousness is wider. I know it's truth the same way that I did when I was at the rational stage, and I thought that was truth. Mm-hmm. So is this a feeling of bliss, or, I mean, is this, like, intense happiness? I mean, what's your experience? Sure. Well, here, again, it gets a little, as you can imagine, it's not as simple as there are simply, you know, just one or two stages, and you plug into it, and then you're constantly aware of, of something in a, in a permanent way. Because there's not only what we call structures of consciousness, which we've been talking about, these archaic structure, magic structure, rational structure, there are states of consciousness. And structures tend to be kind of these permanent organizations. States of consciousness are temporary. They're peak experiences or altered states and so on. And mystics, the sages, the contemplative sages, tend to maintain that this ultimate emptiness is a very simple suchness or isness, that no bliss, none of that kind of frills go with it. It's rather an absence of a freedom from any constriction, including 
feelings of bliss. So the, quote, feeling that is present when one's in that is just vast openness and transparency and freedom and lightness, if you will. Are you aware of your body and your oh, sure. ego and all oh, that absolutely. kind of stuff? So, now, but let me finish that thought because there are also states of consciousness and particularly meditative states. And yes, you can train yourself to get into meditative states that are very blissful. And you can train yourself to get into meditative states that you're not aware of the body. And these can be very, very profound states. We have examples of this, sad examples, of monks in the Vietnam War who would get into the states of not being aware of anything arising, set their bodies on fire and not flinch as they burned to death. Hmm. And we, we saw that on film. So can you get into those states? Yes, you can. And I've done a, a few of them briefly. I actually have a picture of an EEG and me sort of stopping most brain waves, not fully, of course, but dramatically. And this is actually on the website. That's a state. That's not what I'm talking about in terms of this ultimate suchness, because this suchness is that which is aware of all states. So it's aware of your body. The body's arising just like normally, only you are not confined to the body. You don't have a sense that I'm in here and the world is out there. You have a sense of just there is this one arising, and I am all of that. And, of course, I know where my body is. It's right here. I know where my mind is. It's right here. I know where your mind is. It's over there. But there's this fundamental I amness, a sense of I amness, being aware of everything that's arising, a sense of a witness. You're witnessing your body. I have sensations, but I'm not my sensations. I have thoughts, but I'm not my thoughts. That which witnesses those thoughts is this ever-present big mind. Mm -hmm. No, I, I think there's this assumption that master contemplatives, people who can reach such exalted states of enlightenment, are are wonderful human beings, and sort of goodness radiates from them. Is, do you think that's true, or, or is that a whole different well, matter? Well, yes and no again, and we get into the complex natural psychology th these things, which is nothing is really quite ever that simple. In part, yes, there tends to be a radiance and a goodness that comes merely from what happens when you develop to a higher actual stage. So if you look at moral development, for example, at the mythic level, moral development is what's called ethnocentric. Magic stage is egocentric. Mythic stage is ethnocentric. Rational stage is world-centric. And so if you meet somebody that's at a rational post-conventional stage of moral development, they're going to be somebody like Abraham Lincoln. That you, you get a sense that they're going to be fair and just, and that's much better than somebody who's, let's say, a neo-Nazi skinhead at the ethnocentric stage. Mm -hmm. So, there's, again, there's nothing really occult or far out about this. The higher the stage of consciousness, the more perspectives you can take into account. And so, it's, in a sense, a basic goodness tends to increase. And yet we but also it's never, hear... It's, a, it's never that simple because you can have different multiple intelligences and they develop at different rates. Mm -hmm. So there's a cognitive intelligence, there's a moral intelligence, there's an interpersonal intelligence, a psychosexual intelligence, and so on. So in other, and, words, so in other words, someone could be very advanced in their contemplative practice, yeah. but sort of be a rotten human being. You got it. And what we do find is that if your moral development reaches up into the integral and transpersonal levels, then you tend to be, you know, St. Teresa's. But some, you know, there are Picassos who have their cognitive development very, very high in integral, in some cases even transpersonal, but their moral development's in the bloody basement. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's, we call it levels and lines, that there are these developmental lines but they can be at different levels. And so it's one of the things that's very puzzling at first because we think that, well, somebody who has a kind of enlightened awareness is therefore enlightened in every aspect of their life. And it's 
almost rarely the case that that's so. Mm-hmm. And we have to take that into account. I want to ask you about what some New Age writers have made of recent scientific theories. A, a number have latched on to especially the weirdness of quantum physics. Oh, and, yeah. and they see a, a convergence between modern physics and, and mysticism. And there have been popular books like The Tao of Physics yeah. and The Dancing Woolly yeah. Masters and, yep. and the recent hit film, What the Bleep Do We Know? I think oh, is another Lord. example of that. Um, and they often talk about relativity or Heisenberg's uncertainty principle or the blurring of subject and object in modern physics as showing this ultimate oneness of the universe. You've actually been very critical of this way of thinking. Yeah, and there are a couple reasons for it. Part of it is that if we just take, for example, the notion of emptiness that we've been talking about, and one of the real kind of definitions of emptiness and one of the ways that it's experienced is that it's universally held to be strictly non-dual. And non-dual is a very, very radical concept because most people apply non-dual only sort of superficially. They don't realize how deep it goes. And even people like Deepak Chopra do this. These are good people. I know that they're just wonderful people, but I think they're deeply confused here. And a lot of people agree with me. They want to say that there's sort of the quantum field potential. And you're right, the weirdness begins. But there's the quantum field potential and that it gives rise to these manifest particles. And this happens, for example, when the Schrodinger wave equation collapses, one of the esoteric aspects of quantum mechanics. And incidentally, I spent my graduate studies (laughs) using, because I was working on the photoisomerization of Rhodopsin. I was working with quantum events. Mm -hmm. And so they want to say the quantum field potential, that's emptiness, that's the absolute. And then when it gives rise to the manifest domain, that's the relative world. And so here, in a sense, we see a version of spirit giving rise to the manifest world. But emptiness doesn't mean that. Those are both dualistic concepts. They set up the fact that there is a non-local field, and then there's a local event. There's an unmanifest something, and then there's a manifest something. Those are both dualistic concepts. Emptiness is neither of those, nor both of those, nor Neither are both combined, and so on. They're very, very clear. It's not any dualistic concept. All of these things, the Tao of physics and so on, are all trying to take unqualifiable emptiness and give it a quality. Hmm. It's categorically wrong in a really uh-huh. profound way. So the Buddhist emptiness, I mean, there is no corollary in the physical world. Emptiness is, to talk somewhat metaphorically, is that which underlies both the manifest and the unmanifest world. So it's more like the analogies that are often given is in the ocean, it's not a big wave as opposed to a small wave. It's the wetness of all waves. It's the suchness of all things that are arising, the isness, the reality of everything that's arising moment to moment, and you are that. That's the fundamental claim. You are one with that suchness or thusness moment to moment. You are not any dualistic concept. You're not over here versus over there. You're not non-local versus local. You're not unmanifest versus manifest. Those are all dualistic concepts. They all belong to the relative world. They do not belong to the world of emptiness, which transcends and includes all of those. Now, you've also written that many of the great 20th century physicists were mystics, Einstein, Bohr, Planck, Heisenberg, even though none of them thought that science had any connection to religion. Yeah, and we wouldn't say quite that strongly, but it's essentially true. What they were saying is that anything that we find in the realm of physics cannot apply to this unqualifiable, because physics works with things that are qualifiable or quantifiable. And so it's working with some form of manifest finite event. 
and emptiness, if you will, is the ground of all of that. It's so, the so, ground of every single thing. So you can't have any measurement of it. You can't have any proof that's over here and not over there. The proof lies in an awakening, an interior awakening or satori, not in anything, to go back to a previous example, in the same way that anything on the brain machine cannot prove that you're seeing something higher. Like the brain machine can show you that waking is different than dreaming, but nothing on the brain machine can say waking is more real than dreaming. Mm-hmm. Likewise, there's nothing in physics that can prove one is more real than another, just different. Is that what makes them mystics, then? Yeah, what happens, they investigated the physical realm so intensely, looking for answers, and when they didn't find them, they became, if you will, metaphysical. And uh, I collected the writings of the 13 major founders of quantum mechanics, and without a doubt what they were saying is physics has been used from time immemorial to both prove God and unprove God. You, you find just as many arguments from physics you know, showing that God doesn't exist as you find arguments trying to show that it does. And they're both fundamentally misguided because they are attempting, again, to qualify the unqualifiable. And these physicists really became deep mystics, not because of physics, but because of the limitations of physics. Mm. So yeah, that's interesting. So you're saying that it was through understanding that physics can only go so far, that there's yeah. all the stuff that it cannot explain. Yes. That's ultimately a mystical position. Yes, that's correct. And it's pretty straightforward, and I, I was very careful in presenting it, and they're brilliant writings, really quite extraordinary. Not many people realize that Erwin Schrödinger, for example, the founder of quantum mechanics, he had a deep realization experience, a deep Satori experience. He found that Vedanta Hinduism most matched, he liked the description that they used, and that was that you know, the witness, the pure I amness, the pure awareness in you is aware of all objects but cannot itself become an object and it is the absolute it's the way into the door of realizing ultimate reality and this is a guy that, you know, the Schrodinger wave equation I mean he knew what he was doing Werner Heisenberg similar kinds of experiences Sir Arthur Eddington probably the most eloquent of the lot and all of them basically saying that science neither proves nor disproves the emptiness if you will hmm. you know I have to say all of this I find fascinating it but I'm wondering, it is, but I guess the question is, does it really matter? Because, I mean, the other way of sort of saying or sort of getting at some of the things you've been saying is that, you know, really what matters is just to meditate a lot. I mean, to become a really serious contemplative. And, I mean, for instance, if your goal is enlightenment, that's the only thing that matters. You don't need to know any of this intellectual stuff. Well, you don't need to know the intellectual stuff, but I guess what we're trying to say is an integral approach would try to do both. In other words, it would want to look at science of the relative realm simply because, you know, a part of your being, even if you are enlightened and have your head in emptiness, if you will, nonetheless, the manifest part of you belongs to this world. And it's human nature to want to understand this world as well as to awaken from it. And so an integral approach says, look, no, no, let's look at evolution. Let's look at science. Let's look at all of the things we can do to better human beings on the relative plane. And ultimately, what we're looking at is that, if you will, meditation carried to Satori is a way to awaken from this dream of life and answer fundamental questions that everybody in those still dark hours has. Who am I? Why am I here? What does it mean? And science admittedly says we don't do that. We cannot prove or disprove spirit. And a true scientist will tell you that. I'm out of that game. I can't do it. So we want to have on the phenomenal side of the street, on the relative finite side of the street, science. And all of the things on that side of the street that help human beings not suffer and help them 
awaken in the Western sense of enlightenment, of understanding this manifest realm. And then we also want to awaken from it, to have a way, if such exists, to plug into what is claimed to be an ultimate or non-dual ground of all being. And it's either there or it isn't. And if you think it's not there, that's fine, we understand. You're out of the game on that one. But for those who believe it's there, what I like about the contemplative traditions is that they're an interior science. Now remember, that means using science not as having to use sensory experience, but using experience. So there's sensory experience, mental experience, and spiritual experience. Mathematics, for example, is a mental experience. It's not a sensory experience. Mm-hmm. It's you run these equations in your mind, and you feel them. You actually have an experience, a mathematical experience. And there is spiritual experience. And if you want to include that in your science, almost universally, it's claimed, you will find a satori, an awakening, an aha experience that gives you these fundamental answers. And the question is, well, why should I do that? And the answer is, well, it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Do you see your project, your integral philosophy, as essentially bringing together Western and Eastern thinking? Well, that would certainly be one way to look at it. I think that perhaps a little bit more accurate would be we're looking at the contemplative psychotechnologies, if you will, those aspects of contemplative disciplines as they've developed that really were scientific, that tried to be scientific, and that weren't just, you know, looking in the mind and saying, oh, I have a wish, therefore it's real, or getting involved in all the magical, mythical fantasies that run through a human being's mind as well. It's a really trained technology that says if you train the mind, if you train awareness in a very profound way, you can see things better. And if you can see things better, if you can concentrate on an object for more than 17 seconds, you'll actually start to see something about it that you missed previously. And if you do that, you will start to have some of these data, interior data, experiences, satori, and you can check those with others who are doing the same training and make sure that you're trying, you know, sort of doing it right. And then under those circumstances, then you start to find a way to access some of these profoundly spiritual or ultimate grounded being. And you find that both East and West. So we're trying to look at the contemplative, not the mythic dogma, and so those are lower stages of development. They're necessary in a certain sense because everybody's born at square one and will develop through a Santa Claus phase. (laughs) But it's not good for adult human beings at this stage in evolution. So we look East and West to the contemplative traditions, and they start to tell a very similar story, not of a mythic God, but of an emptiness, a non-dual ground of being. And there is a way to access that. There's an interior technology for accessing that. And if you don't believe it, that's okay, but you really try it and see. And then if you don't believe it, got it. So what we do, for example, a true test is take Zen meditators and then take Ph.D. scientists and then take Zen meditators who are Ph.D. scientists. (laughs) And then really check it out and see what they say. I'll tell you what they say. Zen (laughs) meditators who are Ph.D. scientists will talk about Satori. And it just happens so monotonously uniformly in developmental studies. It's just, it's like monotonous. But it's an experiment. Try it. Hmm. Ken, I could go on, but we're out of time. So thank, it, buddy. Yeah, thank you so much. Indeed. You are listening to www.integralnaked.org. 